0: Welcome to the Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM, or on one of our much appreciated radio syndicate partners in Toronto. We don't have any syndicate partners in Toronto? (laughs) This is the only one. We're on CIUT. In Canada and beyond. Or perhaps listening on our podcast, which can be found on www.greenmajority.ca. I am David Hostetter. I am with Stefan Hostetter. In studio, we are just going to talk a bit here at the beginning. Then we're going to go back to Saren and Lauren later on to discuss such issues as the Kigali Amendment, uh, some a bit of fracking, the tech mine being proposed for uh, Northern Alberta, a reduction in meat consumption—that's looking more and more necessary—as well as some Donald Trump BS. So,
1: so the usual, really.
0: Yes, the wonderful walls that keep crumbling down. <laughs> And uh, so, what, what the reason why we are um, taking this first segment out here is because Stefan wanted to address something specifically that happened uh, last week on the show, which is we had a thirty-minute interview with Oakville Mayor Rob Burton, and uh, the interview was conducted and it went by and it was smooth and fine. But uh, Stefan wanted to um, sort of respond to the perspective that Rob Burton presented, even though he's known as the greenest mayor in Canada it's uh, conceivable that he does not perhaps represent what is currently happening in um, climate change or uh, environmental activism.
1: Yeah, that's mm. a, a decent way of putting it. Mm. Yeah, I, I'm not actually going to talk too much about what he said specifically. Mm. Uh, if you want
0: to listen to the interview, please go back and listen to it. You me. listened to our interview last week, and you can listen to the follow-up now.
1: Yeah, uh, but uh, but I want to more specifically sort of use it as an opportunity to... Discuss the ever-diverging lens on the world uh, between sort of modern-day environmentalists and uh, and the sort of conservationists that that sort of see themselves as founding the movement. Uh, because it's true, you know, like it's it's are in a scenario where someone dubbed the greenest mayor of uh, of Canada can deny climate change. Uh, I'm not going to say he does not believe in climate change, uh, but at least a part of that interview certainly it harkens back to a specific kind of. Thinking uh, that is often used by deniers, this concept that environmentalism that the environment is always changing, and so that we you know used to have an ice sheet on us, and so therefore doesn't count. And I sort of in my last ten minutes of that of last week's show, I got like really mad, mm. um, and I wanted to sort of dissect uh, that that rage a little bit, <laughs> uh, or specifically uh, talk about why uh, that rage is valid, mm-hmm. and not my rage specifically. Uh, I I think more actually just sort of the. The the frustrations that exist right now within the environmentalist movement, and especially the frustration of young environmentalists who are up against sort of this overwhelming sense of dread from the on- on- oncoming world, but also sort of being dismissed as you know either not optimistic enough or something uh, within the context.
0: Yes, the position coming from the older generation seemed to be uh, a sort of laissez-faire. Yes, human beings are contributing. Uh, to global warming. However, the climate is always changing, and we just need to believe in ourselves.
1: Well, it, well yeah, and and the, and again, there's a whole bunch of older environmentalists who do not follow that tact. But there's certainly, I think, it comes from that conservationist kind of uh, environmentalism as as NIMBYism or as as fighting against development. That 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 kind of piece of it, I think, is is is, is a difficult thing. Uh, and so I wanted it in three parts. Uh, the first is to sort of dissect uh, or to talk about what the world that that we are inheriting now is mm. and i 'll say you know like i am i'm i 'm almost thirty uh, i am i 'm somewhat different like, it 's very different for me to be saying this than a twenty year old uh, or a two
0: year old um, I would argue it 's not that much different from a twenty year old saying this uh,
1: sure, but I, I think i 'm a little more complicit than twenty year old I think a 20 year old is really getting into a place right now, you know like imagine yourself as twenty just picture as everyone, everyone yourself picture yourself as a 20 year old coming into age right now and, and one of the first times you hear about climate change uh, or one of the first things mm-hmm. you, you your politically active life is is the IPCC saying you have 12 years to fundamentally change the world and then to hear someone come in uh, come out and say but you really just need to focus on local small things don't preach to the world don't try to change big things think locally and be optimistic you can see how that might those two positions clash a little bit, mm-hmm. and so there are sort of three things that 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 got us that so that, that we are exist in right now in this stage, um, and that I want to sort of dissect. The first is consumerism, in that there is a a level of which right now we live in a world in which, where the world is is run on buying more stuff. The economy is so embedded in buying more stuff, and that stuff is so directly tied back to the problem we exist in and and that exi- and, and that was not the case
0: two generations ago and it'd be good if our allies or ourselves could start a war or two in order to sell more stuff
1: well exactly like like that's how we got out of previous recessions right mm-hmm. was 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 to do more consume more mm-hmm. and and so and, and so when you when you get people who sort of grew up in the age of of when consuming more was it was was a was a luxury you know, you're talking about people who are who, who grew up in the mid in, in like who grew up in the '50s and '60s as planned obsolescence uh, and perceived obsolescence were, be, were coming to fruition. You know, as society was literally creating ways to encourage you to consume more and more and more. You ever see what in, in energy utilities advertisements in the '60s were like? They're telling you to spend more energy, use more energy, absorb more things. This was a true luxury. Just like leave
0: your light on when you're sleeping in order to get the economy going.
1: A little, like, like not exactly, but mm. but there was definitely a electrify everything uh, and use more power.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And electrifying everything is still interestingly required, but for entirely different reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, but the idea of, of of that consumerism was so important, uh, and, and that new and that more, and that you you grew up in the 50s when maybe you didn't have as much stuff, or people were just starting to be able to have a bunch of stuff, and and then so you and then so you look back now. At that, at that existence, and, and it, it's, it's, still soak, it's still soaked in within you. And, and today's society and today's young people are being told that, they, that that impulse is not only bad in them, but also something that they themselves have to take on and in, in, in defeat within society. Uh, and, it's, and that's no small feat, that's no small ask of, of, of people, of young people today. Mm-hmm. Um, and the second is the climate timeline, which I sort of already referenced. You know, the fact that we really do have about, tw- you know, according to IPCC, 12 years before we're locked into into some amount of warming that could uh, mean that we no longer have control of the feedback loops that ex- might exist and, and and basically lose control of the climate. And 12 years is not a long period of time. Mm-hmm. 12 years is not a long to- period of time to sort of be complacent. You have to, it, again, it is calling to action, it's calling to requirement, it's calling you to come and do these things. Uh, and the third uh, is we are embedded in a global market. The, the, from the 90s until now, you've seen a massive expansion of the global market. And, and to try to extract ourselves from the global market right now is nearly impossible. You know, buy local is, is a thing you hear all the time, but that doesn't necessarily, that doesn't, that's not possible for a lot of goods. You know, and, and when you try to do things that might allow you to do more local, there are actually rules in place to not allow you to do that. You know the World Trade Organization stopped Ontario from being from mandating that their that solar panels had to be built in Ontario. You had to buy these other solar panels. And so we're so embedded in this global culture that the concept that you have you, you have to focus on the local and the things you can change sort of misses the point. you know we're we're in a world that is so much bigger and that is so much more connected. And so all three of these things is is, is what a twenty year old face, a twenty year old faces. A person who's a twenty-year-old right now, who's coming into in, into their into their political reality, faces a world where they have twelve years to undo the last fifty years of consumerism, the last hundred years of fossil fuels, uh, and the last twenty years uh, or a little more, maybe the last thirty years of this sh- massive shift of global markets. All three of those on a timeline that is incredibly inc- incredibly tight.
0: Wait, but you, so you're saying that the consumerism has to change? The energy system has to change, but it can only be done within the context of a global marketplace.
1: I'm saying that right now the system is in place that, that, that you have to be thinking globally. I, I think that a part of this is dismantling that, that global
0: system. But because climate change is a global phenomenon or because capitalism is a global phenomenon?
1: Because capitalism is a global phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Uh, I you know I think that cl- climate change is is a is a global problem that that will be in some way solved as people you know start using their resources more from their local communities, and in not externalizing a lot of the damages. I think you have to think globally to solve climate change. Which we'll get to in a second, but I, I think but I think that what I'm specifically doing here is that you need to start being able to build and repair things much more locally.
0: So the specific perspective that you're trying to critique here. Mm-hmm is uh, an environmental activist who spent their life doing good things for the environment, quite possibly contributing directly to things like stopping acid rain and fixing the hole in the ozone layer. However, is your ire with the idea that that generation has done enough, or is it that, that type of attitude towards the environment, which is think small and behave humbly, but do your part, um, in your local space is simply um, too narrow.
1: No, I, 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 I wouldn't say that think small and humbly is the problem. Uh, and and that's, not the, what, that's not what the position, uh, the part of the position that, that, that I would criticize. Mm. Uh, I, would, I would criticize the worldview that is, that is coming, that, that, that they're bringing towards this, 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 this uh, problem.
0: Um, that which, you need to be optimistic in the face of climate change because weather systems are always changing.
1: No, no, no. Um, conservationists and, and this type of thinking have come at the world with a couple of specific thoughts, a couple of specific um, precepts.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: the first is that nature left alone is best and that stopping development and allowing nature to be left alone is it should be prioritized. Uh, the second is that you cannot impact things globally and that you should not be thinking globally in your, in your, in your reaction to things. Mm -hmm. Um, And and the third is that the way to change things is to embed yourself in power structures that already exist. Like you saw that in the nineties, the nineties was a time where environmentalists got out and thought, if only we could become the establishment, we could change things. And so you got these larger and larger conservationist groups that would find other and other ways to get themselves further into in bed with the establishment. Um, and in doing so, would find themselves more often than not co-opted rather than actually changing things. You know, there are there are conservationist groups that have literally own oil refinery rigs that they've put in the spaces they're conserving as a way to make money for their organization. Wow. You know, and and that kind of that kind of thinking is the problem, right? You can't, like, the power structures as they are stand now, we have 10 years. It's not a time to, to embed yourself in power structures that don't work. It's a time to throw yourself onto the, the gears to, to, to actually dismantle the current system. And to go back to the conservationist piece and the, and the sort of di- creating this dichotomy between nature and humanity, and nature is better, uh, nature alone is better, and, and humanity is bad, uh, has two fatal flaws in it. The first is that, as studies have shown, by creating this dichotomy, it actually undermines the, 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 the knowledge that existed within indigenous cultures uh, and cultures beforehand that still exist to this day, which actually have proven to take better care of the land than land that is, that is not done. You know, it, the idea that we should force indigenous peoples off the land, they've been there for thousands of years, to then create a park is, 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 comes from this kind of thinking, right? That we are only destructive and the humanity can only be destructive. And the second part of that is to come at this from the standpoint of like I must protect this nature, so no develop, new development can happen. To be anti-development, especially anti-housing development, and I'm not going to go for sprawl. Don't like sp- urban sprawl is bad, and so if you're, you know single-use ha- family housing slowly expanding out from cities only creates a, a much worse car culture. So like there's a version there's there's some parts of development that is definitely problematic, but especially in the sort of world where we are creating these global catastrophes with our, with our wealth, the idea that we should create these global catastrophes, flood these, these, you know, in a Pacific Island nation, and then refuse to create housing for the people whose homes we have now flooded is just, to me, strikingly immoral.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, well, the connection isn't necessarily being made. There.
1: Well, that's the point. The connection is not being made because you are thinking so local. Right. Mm -hmm. You are thinking that if my area around me is green, like I can see trees, Mm -hmm. then I'm doing good. I've done it. Yeah, exactly. You know, like and and so like you can and that somehow becomes priority. Right. The idea that I've created a bunch of green space around me and therefore that is good. And and then and that other things are bad. You know, it, it comes with the same idea that people sort of see downtown cities as 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 so much worse than suburban sprawl. Mm-hmm. Because it's not because there's not as much green there. Mm-hmm. You Where, can see
0: the trees in the suburbs.
1: Exactly. We, you know, despite the fact that you know that it's proven that the suburbs are so much more destructive. Which also comes to a, 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 a side point, but I, I think it's important. Which is that that under that global thinking of what we're responsible for extends our responsibility to climate refugees. I think in a way that a way that uh, so, some some old guard would be uncomfortable with. You know, I think, I think you actively, I think that you cannot be a, a climate justice campaigner or a climate change campaigner in these days and not be pro trying to take care of as many climate refugees as possible because that, the, they're tied, right? We, we have caused this. We are still causing this. Uh, you know, if, if we burned down their house, uh, uh, then you'd think obviously we have the responsibility to, to undo
0: that. What, what environmental justice campaigners don't care about climate change refugees?
1: I, I wouldn't. Say, I would not say. I would not say that. I think climate justice campaigners are would, would be would be relatively uh, more forward thinking on this. I think there are a ton of climate change uh, activists who would not. Mm. You know, I think there's. I think that's the distinction. I, I, I think. I think, and that's why we're seeing the the younger people move closer, more towards climate justice, mm. and more towards the idea that compromise is not actually acceptable. You know, the the idea that you can build a pipeline. While still have keeping you know while still taking climate change seriously comes from this old guard of thinking where you know compromise is always best.
0: Canada is such a large country with so much forestry and so much greenery, so therefore you know we can we can dig an oil pit here and there.
1: Well, exactly. You know, or, or that we're so small that we can't be impacting things, or any of these reasons that you hear all the time. And I think that fundamentally is, is is the problem. And so this is where this is to sort of try to try to try try to bring these back together. This is what is happening. You know, you have the you have an, a set of people who are sort of from the conservationist kind of movement, who are looking at environmentalists now and saying, "You're all too angry.
0: Mm. You know, you're, you're, you're pessimists. Yeah, you just got bad luck. Look.
1: look, I I I thought like you did, and look where I am now. I made it to 75. Mm. And <laughs> And that, to me, is, is the problem. You know, that, that, that they are not experiencing the world as the 20-year-old just coming into their political future. The 20-year-old who knows that by 32, they will be faced with the question of, is it moral for me to have children in a world I know is going towards unstoppable climate change? That is the kind of question that, that is not being asked by these people because they don't have to. And that is where the distinct, that's I think where the, where the, the tension lies. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, the solutions or the ideas that, that were seemed right in the 50s and 60s and 70s, or at least that sort of end up permeating where, where we see now within the conservationist movement um, are not the ideas that, for, this, for this world. This world's on a much shorter timeline. This world has the science to prove that we have 10, 15 years to really do something. And that is what makes rage valid. Because these people didn't do this to themselves. When Kyoto was not signed in 2000, these kids were just getting born. And if you want to talk about scary, wait 12 years. Wait till the 6-year-olds of today hit 18. And enter the voting age and military age of a world that is now locked into climate change. That's the rage you should be really scared of. Because... How do you explain that? How do you explain that to your, to your kids, to your grandkids? That you, that you were there and that, you know, we did something. We gave you a good world. We gave you some work to do. It's good work. No, it's not. It's fundamentally unjust. And that is the thing that I think has not seeped in yet. And that is why the rage is valid.
0: Well, uh, it's good to have someone to fight for us, <laughs> And uh, with that, we're going to turn to our first music break.
2: Welcome. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM. I am your live, non-pre-recorded host, Saren Kayster, in studio with a was-pre-recorded, (laughs) now-live Dave Hostetter. That's right. And no Stefan.
0: Stefan's gone. We got rid of that guy. Don't know what he's doing.
2: Yeah, he... uh, 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 Had to leave. Got all of his feelings out in the first 15 (laughs) minutes. I wasn't here last week but it sounds like you guys uh, manage things fine and, and yeah, that was I, good, uh, it's good stuff. I listen to the, I, I I'm so incredibly busy Dave uh, I, for, for listeners who weren't knowing I'm in, undergoing a like compressed school thing mm. right now so I'm I was up till three doing homework uh, so <clears throat> so I'm a bit off but I'm never out of sarcasm so no. we'll do that so quickly we do have news There's, it's actually quite a news packed show Dave you've prepared quite a few notes Mm-hmm. A little bit of housekeeping before we do that. The fall membership drive here at CIUT, if you are listening live at CIUT, is coming up November twelfth to the eighteenth. I believe that makes our show the sixteenth, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, so that's coming up in November. Stay tuned for that. Start saving your quarters, nickels, and dimes. <laughs> if you're on one of our partner stations, then you have a few weeks notice for us to probably play an old episode, is what I imagine would mm. probably happen. On right. if you're on one of our radio stations. Uh, quick aside, if you're A station that plays us that's not CIUT, we would love to know that you exist. So, once in a while, I do these little call outs. If you're listening from a station that is currently playing this program that is not CIUT, please send us an email at (laughs) greenmajority.ca. We would love to know that you exist. Mm -hmm. Um, And my last piece of housekeeping, uh, Dave, before I let you get started with our news today, is that uh, I've had so much listener email over the last, I would say, three weeks as I've been in school here, just doing nothing but school and barely paying attention to you guys at all, uh, who have been doing a great job in my semi absence. That I I took the time to make a folder for all the unreplied (laughs) listener email. So it's now collected in a neat package. Okay eventually will be responded to. Keep sending it. Keep sending it. Please do. I will respond when I can, or more more likely someone else will. Uh,
0: Dave, the news. Yes. So we're going to start with some positive news uh, today, Saren. At the start of 2019, in January, a, a ratified modification to the 1987 Montreal Protocol, known as the Kigali Amendment, will take effect, greatly reducing worldwide hydrofluorocarbons, or HFCs the website for the Institute for Governance and Sustainable Development, states that the amendment, quote, "...will avoid the equivalent of up to 90 billion tons of CO2 by 2050 and up to 0.5 degrees Celsius of warming by 2100, making it perhaps the single most significant contribution to keeping warming well below 2 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels, aiming for the still safer 1.5 degrees Celsius." The agreement, named for Rwanda's capital of Kigali, represents an intergovernmental commitment to re-engineer products like air conditioners and refrigerators that use HFCs as coolants, as well as altering certain industrial processes to limit the HFC byproduct, which is an example of what are known as short-lived climate pollutants, or SLCPs. SLCPs, which include gases such as methane and black carbon, do not remain in the atmosphere nearly as long as carbon dioxide, which can stay in the sky for a century. But SLCPs trap a lot more heat while they linger, with some contributing 11,000 times more warming than carbon dioxide. The World Resources Institute recently put out a working paper on SLCPs proposing policies for reducing methane, HFCs, and black carbon in various sectors of the economy, stating, quote, Early and ambitious action to reduce short-lived climate pollutants is essential to achieving the goals of the Paris Agreement and the Sustainable Development Goals. SLCPs include methane, hydrofluorocarbons, black carbon, and tropospheric ozone. Actions to reduce these highly potent pollutants help avoid crossing important thresholds such as the 1.5 degrees Celsius temperature rise above pre-industrial levels and potential climate tipping points, which will affect poor and vulnerable communities first and worst founder of the Institute for Governance and Sustainable Development, Durwood Zelki stated last year, quote, With the wolf of climate impacts at our door, time for our counteroffensive is short. The 30 years of success of the Montreal Protocol should inspire us to take still stronger actions and to use additional tailor-made agreements to address specific business sector emissions with the full engagement of industry. So rejoice, Saren rejoice the ratified kigali amendment that will come into effect in two and a half months is a rare piece of good news for the health of planet earth
2: so i know it was a long time ago dave but do you remember back in the year 2008 Mm. there was a financial crash (laughs) and around that time current uh, prime minister at the time, Stephen Harper, Mm. and uh, government and associated mainstream media sources were busily patting Canada on the back. Why, you might ask? The reason was, was because they had apparently a lot more protections in their system to prevent the sorts of catastrophic runaway, too big to fail problems that uh, demolished the Americans. So despite the fact that the global impacts of that financial crash were global and affected the global economy, all countries were impacted. Uh, except maybe North Korea, I don't know. Um, you know, Canadians did better than they could have, and were, at the time, I remember reading articles being allotted for their financial protection policies. Uh, still not as stringent as they could be, but significantly better than the Americans. Why do I bring that up? Well, uh, this is an opportunity for us to do the same thing. We have writing on the wall of a, cr- of a crash And we're choosing not to take those actions. And the reason I make that connection is because that was was a disaster that uh, nobody saw coming in its specifics in the sense that, oh, yes, this is clearly like there's a shark fin. Um, But it was something that we knew might happen. And so these protections were put in place preemptively, you might say. Uh, We have now extremely good evidence for a crash of a arguably more intense kind, because in its order of causality, the climate will affect the economy. The economy doesn't directly affect the climate, but it does affect it the other way around. Um, And yet... We are not doing anything. So uh, what I'm concerned about here, so there's one comparison. A is the, hey, we have a good history of like dealing with problems in advance uh, by anticipating consequences. So that shouldn't be a crazy idea. Hmm. Um, And we've already seen the benefits of that. Uh, But B, um, meanwhile, all these smaller countries, which, you know, uh, we're making all these agreements at the global level. The smaller, uh, less rich nations uh, among them are, are taking action much more quickly and much more stridently. Why? Well, because they're going to be affected much sooner. Uh, you know, There are certain countries that might be underwater in the next 10 years. Uh, or half underwater. And so this is a problem for them now. It's a problem for everybody now, but it's a tangible problem for them now. What we might see, though, is that for any of these countries that are not wiped off the Earth is I'm just sort of wondering if, you know, uh, maybe uh, a small island uh, that somehow stayed above water in the middle of the ocean is now going to be the new global superpower because it's the only one that wasn't wiped off the map and decided to invest in renewable energy. Mm. Um, power, sh- Global power shifts. When resource uh, values shift and we're about to undergo one and we're not doing anything about it. Mm. And uh, the connection there is sort of like triple at least. But, you know, the consequences of what happens when you don't prepare is severe and uh, affects the economy and is financial. And uh, it's not like we've never done this before. That's all. So it is good news. It is good news. It's just it's just interesting to me because, you know, I I feel like we read these stories about things that are going on on the global level uh, with these uh, international um, agencies and everybody says, you know, yes, totally. Yes. Strong agree. Ratify, ratify, ratify. But the people who are actually doing this stuff as if they mean it uh, is not us. Mm -hmm. That's my comment.
0: Mm. All right. And I'm going to move on to now a uh, story about meat. <laughs> meat. So
2: a... Oh, I should warn, fan service for our vegan friends. Listen up.
0: Mm-hmm. A new study published in Nature titled Options for Keeping the Food System Within Environmental Limits is claiming that a massive reduction in the consumption of animal products will be necessary in avoiding disastrous climate degradation. The study advocates a worldwide shift to a flexitarian or semi-vegetarian diet, concluding that Western nations must consume 90% less beef, 60% less milk, and 500% more beans, lentils, peas, and seeds. Poor nations, however, according to current dietary standards, need to consume more meat and dairy. In terms of a global average, we need to cut pork consumption by 90%, beef by 75%, eggs by 50%, and eat 300% more beans and pulses and 400% more nuts and seeds in a change that would allow us to cut livestock emissions in half. The report notes, however, that like carbon pollution, our current trends are in the opposite direction. The study also looks at needed changes in agriculture and food distribution, as farming is creating large dead zones in the oceans, deforestation and water shortages, and yet one third of all produced of all one third of all food produced today is gone entirely to waste, the researchers suggested that meat taxes, <clears throat> educational efforts, subsidies for vegetarian foods, and changing school and office menus were indispensable uh, are indispensable in making sure the climate remains stable. Damien Carrington writes for The Guardian, quote, To halt deforestation, water shortages, and pollution from overuse of fertilizer, profound changes in farming practices are needed. These include increasing crop yields in poorer nations, more universal water storage, and more, far more careful use of fertilizers. Leading researcher Marco Springman stated, quote, People can make a personal difference by changing their diet, but also by knocking on the doors of their politicians and saying we need better environmental regulations. That is also very important. Do not let politicians off the hook. Joseph Poor of the University of Oxford stated earlier this year, <coughs> Quote, A vegan diet is probably the single biggest way to reduce your impact on planet Earth. Not just greenhouse gases, but global acidification, eutrophication, land use, and water use. It is far bigger than cutting down on your flights or buying an electric car.
2: Yeah, so um, you're welcome, uh, half the audience. Um, (laughs) And uh, uh, all of those things are true. Uh, I I will say that... Uh, I believe one item was missing from your list of things that need to be increasingly consumed. So you list here beans, lentils, peas, and seeds. I would add, in fact, insects uh, Mm. to that list um, as an amazing opportunity. I'm personally not a fan of eating like bug candies and stuff. I'm just not down with that. Uh, But I'm super down with stuff being like mixed into food. I have no problem eating bugs. I just don't want to eat bugs that look like bugs in the same way that I don't want to eat hamburgers that are shaped like cow heads.
0: I can can imagine like a falafel-like dish made of crickets or something. Thing.
2: Totally, mm. uh, that You can make fabulous flour about it. So we could have a whole conversation about that, but I'm trying to shoehorn a bunch of comments in here. So well, let's pause <laughs> that. Uh, as a former professional chef, uh, I can also tell you that it is very easy to pare down the meat in your food. Um, if you think of it as like a resource consumption scale, right? There's basically uh, beef at the top. I may get something wrong here, but over like, largely this is correct. Um, so it's like beef and then pork and then chicken and then fish. And then as far as like the amount of resources per pound of nutrition mm. or whatever you want to do, like that's Sort of a ratio, Um, so just think about bumping things down. If you if you think about okay, well, I have you know three beef meals a week, make it two. If I have two chicken meals a a week, make it one. And you just you bump everything down the list. You still have the same amount of meat initially. This was my strategy, Um, but you sort of you're just sort of you're just rotating everything one rung down the ladder. And then maybe you could switch out the one at the bottom when it becomes fish. You switch that out for a vegetarian. What you can do is over time. It doesn't have to be over a specific time set. Um, but you just like over time, you just like increment it. Be like, hey, I've been doing two portions of chicken a week for three months now. I'm pretty used to having a little bit less meat. Maybe I'm going to go for one. And then if you decide to have a second one, that's fine, right? It's a personal boundary. And that's um, how I recommend that folks who are not excited about veganism, uh, but maybe are sympathetic to the environmental concerns, go about thinking about this. Because it would it be great if we could snap our fingers and magically everyone um, had access to could afford and wanted a vegan diet, um, that would be fabulous. Uh, but that isn't true. Uh, all three of those things are false. <laughs> uh, so this is this this is my recommended strategy on moving forward. I have so much more I could say about food, Dave. Um, but believe it or not, uh, we're actually moving on in time. Do you want to try? It, do, I could I could drag. I could say a couple more things, and we could start fresh. Or do you want to go to break? Or, or how do you want to do this?
0: We got let's about go three. To, minutes. Let's go to the oil spill. Okay, let's do oil spill. Uh, first, I just want to say that when I went to vegetarian uh, a long time ago, uh, my parents were, I was a teenager at the time, my parents were a little bit disturbed uh, that they would have to now cater to that. However, it sort of opened up a culinary evolution for them, and they learned to cook uh, very interesting and new things, and they, and they still do it to this day, even though I'm no longer vegetarian.
2: Eating uh, eating meat is, uh, from a culinary point of view, not nutritionally, but just from a, from a, from a dietary and culinary point of view, uh, but specifically from a cooking, like a culinary point of view, uh, is really lazy. People think, mm. oh, meat's the best mm-hmm. thing. That's why I want it. Mm, it's just the thing that you can do the least to and have it be tasty. Oh, delicious. But if you actually have the slightest clue how to cook anything, and I don't mean like fancy cooking skills. I mean like really... Really basic stuff. Um, Vegetables can be... And combinations of things. Anything but meat can Mm -hmm. be quite delicious. Mm -hmm. If you really need a tip, email me. It (laughs) might take you a month to get a reply, but I'd be happy to help.
0: All right. So the um, oil spill now. The Washington Post is reporting that every day, somewhere between 300 and 700 barrels of oil are pouring into the Gulf of Mexico from a broken oil rig and have been for 14 years. The unchecked spill is now close to becoming, quote, one of the worst offshore disasters in U.S. history, likely becoming bigger than BP's 2010 Deepwater Horizon spill. There is currently, quote, no fix in sight for this spill, which has been occurring since Hurricane Ivan caused a mudslide that sank an oil platform owned by Taylor Energy in 2004. Daryl Fears writes for The Washington Post, quote, The Taylor Energy spill is largely unknown outside Louisiana, because of the company's effort to keep it to keep it secret in the hopes of protecting its reputation and proprietary information about its operations, according to a lawsuit that eventually forced the company to reveal its cleanup plan. The spill was hidden for six years before environmental watchdog groups stumbled on oil slicks while monitoring the BP Deepwater Horizon disaster a few miles north of the Taylor site in 2010. 600 million barrels of oil have been extracted from the gulf of mexico in 2018 alone and 40 billion barrels are still waiting underground to be recovered and burned large companies can't afford to pay for the lawsuits uh, injured workers and cleanup efforts associated with the risky business as bp has put out 66 billion for the 2010 spill. but smaller companies like taylor energy do not have such deep pockets they ended up making a quiet deal with the federal government to create a $666 million cleanup fund before attempting a, a series of minor efforts that all failed. Conservationists argued in court that the deal was against national policy that mandates public appraisal of such disasters. Their lawsuit stated, quote, Taylor has failed to provide the public with information regarding the pace and extent of the oil leaks and Taylor's efforts to control the leaks. It is also It also turned out, that Taylor Energy was drastically underreporting the extent of the spill a crime for which there is no fine regarding the hurricane that caused the disaster the president of the company stated quote i can affirmatively stay, i can affirmatively say that we do believe this was an act of god under the legal definition by way of comparison there have always been between 2700 and 13700 barrels of oil per day naturally seeping into the gulf Meaning that the Taylor energy spill represents somewhere between two and 25 percent of what would be leaking without human activity. While some argue that the numbers render the Taylor energy spill unimportant, it is clear that this huge discrepancy between two and 25 percent makes it impossible to say just how unimportant it is, and besides, it still represents ongoing and dangerous alterations to our natural environment. Well. I think that story pretty much speaks for itself.
2: Uh, the <laughs> The only thing I the only thing I would say about that before we go to break is just that the uh, um, yeah, I mean, the, the, it's like that the person in high school who like claimed to date like the star football player from the other team or like a supermodel, <laughs> but you never met them. <laughs> if they're real, then, you know, why do you, why can't we see them? And the, the, what, I, what I'm trying to say is that like, every time there's a talk about, you know, the danger of uh, oil, we're told that these spills never happen. And when they do, they're cleaned up so well, we're so good at cleaning them up. Well, then why are you always trying to hide it? Why are you, why is your first uh, instinct to misreport to the government what happened, not tell them for weeks, try and sanitize your data, then lobby to be able to self-report so that you don't have to actually like prove anything these numbers, but yeah, I'm sure you're totally, everything's totally relaxed. Like it's, you, you could like, it's like Donald Trump level lying in the sense that it's such a big lie that people assume it has to partially be true. That's essentially the thing with Donald Trump, right? Which is that he tells such ridiculous lies that people assume it can't possibly all be a lie. Uh, and that's basically, uh, oil companies. I mean, we, we could do a whole show on, on my cynicism about this topic, but, uh, I think the story largely speaks for itself with that one comment. Shall we, Shall we go to break and we'll come back and do, we got a couple more stories, right? Yeah, let's do it. All right. So, uh, Megan, we're going to go to you for our music break. You're listening to the green majority here at CIUT 89.5 FM, our wonderful and very appreciated community radio partners, uh, and, uh, you at home listening on the podcast. We'll be right back.
0: The clock is gonna turn back soon. The season is already
1: changing. We say goodbye for the final time. My room needs rearranging.
2: The sidewalk is full of people and leaves, and we're all turning colors. Alright, we're in the home stretch here. You're listening to the Green Majority on CIUT9.5 FM. I am in in, in bleh, 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 bleh. I am in studio with Dave Hostetter. Yes. Alone, solo, just Dave. <laughs> just Dave. And Megan's on the other side of the glass. Hi, Megan. Uh, we have 15, 14 minutes left, um, and you have two stories. So uh, do you want to – how do you want to do this? Do you want to shotgun both? Yeah. Okay. So we're, we're going to shotgun no, – No, no, no.
0: I'm no, 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 not shotgunning. I don't, you don't drag- want to shotgun. I don't shotgun.
2: Okay. So we'll one by one here. Okay. So go ahead.
0: Yes. Fracking. Uh, fracking is starting up again in Britain after a seven-year hiatus as a court has ruled that Lancashire County had in fact accounted for the civil contingencies involved with the risks of this explosive deep well drilling practice, which has previously caused minor earthquakes in the UK. Protesters are already being arrested for blocking the road outside the gas company Quadrilla's Lancashire site, holding signs with such slogans as, Fracking Causes Earthquakes. The reopened drilling is not expected to reduce gas prices, but can increase energy security in the event of geopolitical tensions. One protester stated, quote, The government is not interested in what local communities have to say. After all democratic avenues have been exhausted over a seven-year campaign, there is a place for direct action to stop this industry. The dime-a-dozen-smear campaign that is typically launched against environmental activists is also present here, as protesters are being accused of being unemployed and or strangers to the area. Retired gas worker Terry Robinson said of the new fracking, I can't comprehend why they're trying to force it on us. I come down here every Monday to protest, and I'll continue to come down until it stops. I think most people will. He told The Guardian that his entire house began wobbling when Quadrilla first fracked on the flied coast. A 2012 study carried out by the Department of Earth Sciences at Montana State University explains the process of fracking in the following way. Quote, Vertical well bores are drilled thousands of feet into the earth through sediment layers, the water table, and shale rock formations in order to reach the oil and gas. The drilling is then angled horizontally, where a cement casing is installed, and will serve as a conduit for the massive volume of water, fracking fluid, chemicals, and sand needed to fracture the rock and shale. In some cases, prior to the injection of fluids, small explosives are used to open up the bedrock. The fractures allow the gas and oil to be removed from the formerly impervious rock formations. It adds, quote, Although fracking has technically been in existence for decades, the scale and type of drilling now taking place, deep fracking, is a new form of drilling and was first used in the Barnett Shale of Texas in 1999. One environmental impact of fracking is the release of methane from the drilling sites. The gas wells in Weld County, Colorado alone accounted for methane pollution equal to the carbon emissions of 1 to 3 million cars. The study did not state over what time period this was measured. There is also the problem of certain chemicals and metals used or exposed during the process, exposure to which can cause, quote, uh, sorry, can cause horrendous health impacts, including cancer and death. In terms of water pollution, the report notes, quote, <clears throat> Each well produces millions of gallons of toxic fluid containing not only the added chemicals, but other naturally occurring radioactive material, liquid hydrocarbons, brine water, and heavy metals. Fissures created by the fracking process can also create underground pathways for gases, chemicals, and radioactive material. <clears throat> On the topic of prevention, mitigation, and the role of government, the 2012 report, Curiously, states, curiously stated, quote, while many state agencies function as more as facilitators of fossil fuel uh, energy development than regulators, federal guardians of public health are also vulnerable to getting into bed with big business, literally. One need only recall the former federal agency in charge of collecting oil and gas royalties on public lands, the Minerals Management Service. Employees from the Bush administration, working for that regulatory agency, were caught using cocaine and marijuana and had sexual relations with oil and gas company representatives. The report concludes, quote, If a carbon tax were to be passed energy companies would no longer get away with passing their so-called externalities onto the community, taxpayer, or environment. The specter of climate change makes the accelerated pursuit of carbon-based fuel an irrational policy predicted to be far more expensive than the initial costs required to switch to clean energy technologies.
2: So, <clears throat> two comments, Dave. Mm. Uh, the cheap one first. Mm-hmm. Who's surprised about the uh, illicit activities?
0: It was a very curious addition. I think the study was actually compiled by um, first-year students of either a graduate or undergraduate capacity. Mm. Given the uh, quality of the study, I would imagine they would be first-year undergraduates. However, I also imagine they had uh, quite a good time writing that particular paragraph. I imagine.
2: (laughs) Well... It's also just, uh, anyway, the, the uh, hypocrisy. <laughs> Getting into go- bed, Google literally. The word, <laughs> Google the word hypocrisy. Uh, and I just mean as, in so as far as the right wing's espousal of values and the, what happens when they get caught. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, point two, more serious point, is uh, to reference people back. Uh, you've probably heard of it before. Uh, if you haven't, this is your opportunity to go Google Gasland by Josh Fox. Uh, done in 2010, he has since done a follow-up, which I actually haven't seen, uh, the follow-up film, Um, but it was an American documentary from 2010 written, directed by Josh Fox, and it's uh, focusing on uh, communities in the US uh, affected by natural gas and specifically these types of uh, hydraulic fracking that we're talking about um, was quite a catalyst in the US as far as um, creating sort of popular resistance to fracking specifically. Um, But also showed uh, a bunch of things which uh, people for years up to that point had been largely getting away with just saying were myth and not true, which is that, yes, people's water from their taps was catching on fire and stuff like that. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, you know what I could I I can say so much about about this. I feel like I can't there's nothing to say, uh, which is often a topic about that, but. Another uh, another example of people saying, you know, hey, what do you want me to do? I'm a politician. Uh, You know, hey, I know you don't like this, but, you know, these other people voted for me and so I have to do that. They're like, yeah, the same people or the same group of people who elected you are the people who are complaining. Uh, But when they're complaining uh, and it's a company that's going to be benefited, all of a sudden those same people now become, well, you know, they don't live in this community and uh, these are just hired. It's all Soros. It's all mm-hmm. George Soros. Okay.
0: Um, it's especially funny in the UK because they don't actually need the energy produced. Yeah. Uh, they're creating in the eventual uh, possibility of um, needing it in the future, maybe. In the meantime, they're causing earthquakes, and they know that they're causing earthquakes. Yeah. Um, so uh, go watch uh, Gasland, and that's about all I have to say. All right. So uh, our final story today, uh, the uh, Donald Trump. <laughs> uh, so buried uh, very deep. Uh, In an environmental impact statement by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration that was written in July but released in August, the Trump administration appears to be defending its decision to roll back fuel efficiency standards on the grounds that the impact of those standards is negligible given the inevitable rise in global temperatures by four degrees Celsius. The Trump administration's environmental and energy policies have included pulling out of the Paris Agreement, re-embracing coal power, beginning to open up new offshore drilling, and selling off protected public lands to oil companies. It now appears to be basing these policies on the idea that planet-wide climate change devastation is unavoidable and short-term profiteering is the only thing that makes sense. They are therefore explicitly accepting a slew of untold catastrophes set to unfold in a chain reaction, the end of which we cannot imagine, but will certainly include the death of Miami and Manhattan, and they are concluding that there's nothing whatsoever to do about it. The Trump administration report stated that fighting global warming would, quote, require substantial increases in technology, innovation, and adoption, and would require the economy and the vehicle fleet to move away from the use of fossil fuels, which is not currently technologically or economically feasible. The Washington Post reports, quote, Conservatives who condemned President Barack Obama's climate initiatives as regulatory overreach have defended the Trump administration's approach, calling it a more reasonable course. Yes, ignoring science and risking the end of life as we know it on planet Earth is being called the more reasonable course in today's America. Now, we use the term research very loosely when we describe the Heritage Foundation's Nick Loris as a research fellow, but in any case, he represents a powerful cohort of conservative denialism who believe that Obama's climate policies were symbolic and frivolous because they would not have done much to alter global emissions. Apparently, the answer is, therefore, make the problem much worse. Rachel Cletus, policy director and lead economist for the Union of Concerned Scientists Climate and Energy Program, stated, quote, with this administration, it's almost as if this science is happening in another galaxy.
2: Yeah, it's, it treats uh, it treats climate change as if it was a binary, which is that we either get climate change or we don't get climate change. I mean, like, if we're going to get climate change anyway, we might yeah. as well get whatever we can. Uh, not uh, understanding, willing, willingly, willfully, not understanding, of course, that it makes it worse.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Hey, you're already bleeding. Might as well stab yourself in the face.
0: Mm-hmm. And not only that, but there's the absurdity of, of, a, of constant climate denialism and, uh, and in using this to gain, to gain election and peddle conspiracy theories and then going, oh, yeah, well, we actually know it's going to be much worse than, than, uh, than we would like to uh, admit. And so that's why we are doing these policies. It's, it's, it's totally um, just double speak.
2: There, there's another way to look at this, which is to, we can just officially claim victory, which is when the other side says it's happening. That's how I know it's we shouldn't do anything about it. Yeah. Uh, you've basically that's a concession. Uh, that's a concession that that most people will miss that aren't already on t- on team. No one's going to change sides. But that is a the ultimate that is the final concession in that argument. Um you know, uh, it's, it's, just not there. So rather than spe- addressing the specific points and it, we only have three minutes anyway. I was going to shotgun just my sort of top three climate change, not the complicated versions of the arguments, but the basic ones. So, uh, the simple version it's worth the risk, uh, Uh, I.e. drilling oil. Well, you know, it's just such a good thing. Yes, there is problems. There's downsides. We get oil spills, but it's worth the risk. Uh, Well, these companies take steps to isolate themselves from that risk. The public pays for the oil spills. All the extra costs are externalized. So it's worth the risk because they don't have to pay it. You do. The people that benefit are not the people that take the risk. Other options aren't available. What can we do? Well, because the political and power class are spending all of their energy actively preventing the gravity that is technical process. Capitalism much? Uh, so you don't get to say, this is the. We, what else can we do if you're actively preventing the other options? And the last one is, it's so expensive. So is paying for a fire department that's on fire. And it gets more expensive the longer the fire burns. So, yeah. Uh, So none of those are directly responding to Trump because it's pointless. Uh, It's just a a bobblehead. Um, But as far as people in that similar uh, position, uh, if you happen to be listening, which I doubt that you are, those are the answers to your questions. Uh, We're basically out of time. Did you have any comments on that last one? Yeah, I was going
0: to say it's the uh, nature of the current American madness, that there is probably a decent, uh, a sizable portion of, uh, or a sizable group of individuals who will now admit climate change is in fact occurring and perhaps run away. However, uh, it's improvable that... uh, Humans are causing it. And in fact, it's probably some galactic uh, issue happening uh, beyond Pluto, right. which I actually discovered the other day.
2: Well, the, the climate is kind of like a teeter-totter, which is that the harder you shove down your – it's like a teeter-totter war, right, with like, with, with like young boys, right? So the harder you shove down your side, the, the, far, the farther the other person shoots. So if we climb it the most, we get the least impacts, I think that's how that works. It's like climate a the time, most, right? So if we put out the most CO two, mm. the climate change goes to China. That's, mm. So that's how it works. So that's oh, what yeah, see, Trump's yeah, all over this. Yeah, do you yeah, see yeah. What's That's what that's what people aren't recognizing. You just you push the climate change away from you
0: mm-hmm. if you mm-hmm.
2: make the climate change.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's winning. how it's always worked. Winning. Yeah,
2: winning. We're out of time. Dave, has okay. been a, it's been a slice. Yes. Thanks so much for listening, folks. We'll be back next week. I'll be better slept. Stefan will be here, uh, and I'm sure I'll have a joke. Have a (laughs) good green week. Take care. (laughs)